You're listening to the Lean Built Podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm Andrew. In this podcast, we discuss our manufacturing companies, lean principles, and the freedom that we're pursuing in life and business. So the question of how to communicate lead times, especially on custom projects, sprint runs, small runs, last minute changes and updates and things, it feels like every shop deals with this and it's often dependent. The way that people communicate and what their expectations are vary from industry to industry, from type of part to type of part. But how do you guys handle that? I mean, you offer some stock products off the shelf. You offer some custom products. We offer mostly stock products off the shelf. But on the CNC side, we do have clients that we do custom parts for and volumes vary widely and expected lead times vary widely. And some customers we keep material on hand for because they order consistently and other customers, we only order material on demand when they give us a PO Mm -hmm. because they order infrequently. Yeah. How do you work through all that? Well, we classify three types of product that we sell in stock, custom, and turnkey. In stock, There's really no excuse why we should not ship same day. If McMaster Car literally has millions and millions of units of inventory and they ship twice daily to at least us in Southern California, why can't we manage around 100 SKUs? So that's the first thing. The next thing would be our custom like top plates, custom pallets. Those we typically keep, if you can use some of our standardized material, that's something that very short lead time, two to three days. And then our last thing where it takes lots of brain power, it's lots of emails back and forth, our turnkey stuff, that can be weeks out. And that's usually where it's my, my engineer, Carlos, he's going back and forth with the customers, probably sending us a drawing. Actually, we don't accept drawings anymore. We only take solid models like step files. Really? And yeah, and then we'll edit and tell them, hey, there's some design restraints here. And then once it's been approved, it's signed off by the customer. Uh, so that back and forth is several days, sometimes several weeks or months, depending on the customer. But then it goes to my machinist, my lead guy, Alex, he does all the turnkeys and then it's got to fit into his schedule and the machine schedule. And so that's why from approved design that we get where the customer signs off to shipping, it's several weeks, like typically two to three weeks. So that, that helps classify stuff mentally. Our stock products, this has to go back several years. We have an order alert system, which is powered by a Raspberry Pi hooked up to a PA speaker, self-powered, yep. that monitors an inbox. And that inbox, the code on the Raspberry Pi scans the emails of the incoming orders, and it looks for words like ground, next day air, next day air anything that has air. Now, we had to tweak that because if someone orders like 15 feet of airline tubing, it plays... <laughs> the order alert saying, Hey, (laughs) ship this. So it's not perfect, but it's good enough. So that way, if a customer is placing an order with us and they select any type of expedited shipping, they're already under pressure. And so those jump the line and we try and get a tracking number to them within 20 minutes of that order coming in just to alleviate that. It's just a better customer experience. That makes sense. Have you tried doing day and air? Yeah, that would cover second day air, next day air. Uh, It doesn't cover three day select, and that's another one. But I suppose if it looked for that exact phrase, yeah, that would work, wouldn't it? If it said day and or air or select, Mm -hmm. it'd probably catch everything. Yeah. Or that exact phrase. I don't know why my guy didn't code it in the first time. 
Yeah, this is the whole like hard code versus do macros to check for things. Yeah. If it looks for, if you know what the exact phrases are, if it looks for next day air or two day air or mm-hmm. three day select. Yep. As we have, discrete chunks. It yeah, we have our international all orders also. That's the thing. Okay. So it, we, it's got to scrape eh. those. It got to the point where I go, wait, we're putting way too much time into dial this in. When honestly, most of the guys, if they hear any type of tone, they just get up and start shipping and then go back to assembly. Okay. So, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't need to be as exact. And I definitely don't want to put in as much time as I think it did in the past. But this was a project, go back to 2017 or 18, something like that. And the code yeah. is just stuck. So the idea of managing customer expectations as the first step in delivering an extraordinary experience to the customer, because there are lots of job shops. Mm-hmm. There are lots of CNC shops. And it is not my goal ever to be one of the CNC shops. Mm-hmm. My goal for both my retail and my wholesale clients is to be a shop where the process of ordering and receiving the product is notably different in articulable ways from just run-of-the-mill stuff. So we use Fulcrum ERP, and actually Mm -hmm. one of the things they've recently launched that we're not yet using but have started to play around with is a client-facing portal where you can give certain clients access to essentially log into a limited view of your ERP externally and see live status updates on their jobs. Mm -hmm. And in principle, I love it. However, it also requires us to make sure that we don't take any internal shortcuts Mm -hmm. in terms of how things are categorized or prioritized or scheduled. And one of the things that I've said to our account rep at Fulcrum a number of times is we essentially don't do due dates, which sounds absolutely heretical for a CNC machine shop. That's that's off the chart, crazy town. Yeah. What I mean by that though is generally we don't produce things until they're ordered and then we produce them immediately. Mm-hmm. And we're not really scheduling things out in advance. I saw an interesting post one of the few interesting posts that I've ever seen on LinkedIn from Paul Van Meter, who I respect a great deal. I visit with him every time I go to IMTS. I always make sure to catch up with him. And I actually had a chance this year to go to Brown County High School in Nashville, Indiana for the Eagle Manufacturing Open House. It is an incredible shop for high schoolers. Mm -hmm. Five-axis milling, lathes, laser, plasma, a full shipping area. like They are a student-run business. It's amazing. Now, now, wait a minute. Is this the one you sent me an image? Like They, they use a Pearson product? Was that the- Yes. Yeah, that's okay, Eagle Manufacturing yeah. in Nashville. Yeah. Yeah. I so, dug into those guys. They're awesome. There they're are, super quick. There's an entire region in Southern Indiana called the Uplands. Mm-hmm. And there are a number of high schools with student-run businesses in that region. Um, some of them have like one high school has a student-run bakery. One has a student-run, primarily soft goods and garment shop that does like hats and hoodies and screen printing. And then Eagle Manufacturing in Nashville has a couple of mills. It's got a UMC 500. They've got a plasma table. They've got laser cutters. They've got a suite of 3D printers of different kinds. They've got screen printing and rotary garment printing. They've got a whole bunch of stuff. They do custom embroidery. It is a full-on thing. 
and they're using ProShop ERP to manage all that. We are actually a client of theirs. We use them to screen print some of our shop t-shirts. But it was really interesting for me to talk to Paul and talk about managing expectations. And one of the things that he said was having a scheduler, an automated scheduler that uses an algorithm or AI or some set of criteria that you control to slot jobs in in the future is the low-hanging fruit. It seems like the easy option toward managing on-time delivery, but it is like the last step and everything else, standardized tooling, standardized work holding, managing your employee schedule to make sure you know who's going to be where, when, mm-hmm. making yeah. sure you have good, consistent supply chains for materials, coolant, like all the other ancillary things that go into actually running the customer's parts. All those things are upstream of software scheduling the job. Yeah. That made me blink for a few seconds and go, huh, huh, hmm. I get it though. It makes no, sense. No, it took a second for me. Now, there's a really interesting question to all shop owners, machinists, whatever, which is when you think about things in your shop, how do you think of them? Do you visualize lists? Do you visualize your workspace? There's a, there's a cool book I read years ago. I think it was called Spacewalking with Einstein. Mm-hmm. But the entire book is about how people learn to excel at memory challenges. Like the you have 60 seconds to memorize the entire order of a 52-deck playing card stack. Mm-hmm. Or you have five minutes to memorize a 300-digit number. Just like crazy stuff. And it goes back to the entire idea of a memory palace, which connects all the way back to the ancient Greeks. But it's the concept of using visual and spatial imagination to connect facts to visualizable things. So Mm. like when I think of things in my shop, if I'm away from the shop, like I was away today and somebody texted me and said, hey, I'm trying to find this or that thing. Where is it? What I visualize is me walking through the shop and finding that thing. Mm -hmm. I go, in my mind, I'm in the shop. I need that tool. Right. And I go, okay, it's in the blue cabinet next to this in the third or fourth drawer down near the back. Yeah. (laughs) That's associative memory, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. The idea of linking things... And anytime you try to memorize arbitrary lists of things, this is why I can never remember a shopping list. Mm-hmm. I just cannot remember a shopping list. I go to the store and what happens every time is I walk out with a box of Triscuits and meat, probably olives and pickles and some other random thing, but not what my wife asked for. Right. <laughs> Because you're picturing your meal. (laughs) When I go to the grocery store hungry, I buy four things. I buy Triscuits. I buy manager special steaks, discounted stuff that's about to expire, so it's a good deal. And then I buy olives and pickles. I I love olives. I love pickles. I love steak. 
I love Triscuits. That's what I buy when I'm hungry and I'm at the grocery store. Yeah. And if my wife tells me what she wants and she doesn't text me a list or send me a photo of a shopping list that she drafted, I'm completely at sea. I just Mm -hmm. do not remember things because they're arbitrary. Yeah. Hey, that reminds me, we've talked about different tests on this podcast before. Did we talk about humanbenchmark.com? No. No. Okay. So this was really interesting. I played baseball through high school and college and the best hitters have the best reaction time. And I would say the best athletes have the best reaction time and reaction time tapers off the older you get. So I just Googled human reaction time, came across humanbenchmark.com that so far it has eight different tests that you can take. And one, which is my favorite because I score the highest on all these eight is called the chimp test where it tells you a sequence of numbered patterns, which chimpanzees, they crush it for some reason. Like their brain is wired where they make it look easy. And I would probably do like, I would search on YouTube chimp test and watch for a video because it'll display a pattern, like a long pattern of 20 sequential boxes that light up on a screen and it shows them the sequence at which it lights. And then they all light up at the same time and the chimp just taps them in order. And it's pretty Mm -hmm. incredible. Humans score poorly on that. But then there's other things like sequence memory, verbal memory, visual number memory. And then one of them is reaction time. And it's pretty interesting because the brain is wired differently across your lifespan and it's wired differently with different people. And I'm like, how do we hack this so that I can have very strong visual memory or know that I have strong visual memory? Therefore, I should not try and remember things audibly, you know, or maybe I shouldn't make, take notes. Like I didn't take notes through high school or college because I knew that I could remember things better if I heard them taking notes and doing something visually like writing would uh, hijack my brain where I couldn't listen and listen to the lecture and retain it. I just needed to listen and get into whatever, some type of brainwave and just stay there. And so this human How do you remember things that you've read? Man, I am not a highlighter and I don't like to plow through books. I just like to stop and pause and then almost I feel like I have to read something and then I need to imagine myself how I would implement that or deploy that in the company or in my life or in the home. And then it sticks. Okay. It's like I've experienced so- it. Particularly in the question of how do you recall things that you've read? What I said to a friend of mine was, well, I just, I visually imagine the book and I reread it. Wow. Okay. So you visualize words on a page? Yes. And this is the weird thing. So when somebody asks me for a quote from a book, like if I mentioned something, I have not a photographic memory, but close. Uh Uh-huh. And I remember audio very, very well. So movie quotes, I'm very good with. (laughs) Sure. But when I want to remember something, I often actually visualize it and will imagine it as a right or left page and imagine its placement on the page Mm -hmm. and reread it out loud to myself mentally. Yeah. Okay. That, I used to be like that. If you ask me, like, what's that one verse in the Bible? I could say, oh, I know it's in James. It's on this chapter. It's on the right side of the page. 
about two thirds of the way down. And there's a note, a highlighted note four verses down, but it's above that. Yeah. But I'm not like that anymore. That's, I don't know. What happened? Did you turn 40? (laughs) Yes. That's part (laughs) one. I stopped exercising the memorization part of my brain and started working the algorithmic because you get to a certain point in life and you have a basic set of like a knowledge base and a skill set, but everything that comes at you is a word problem. And like, I think I mentioned it publicly. I would love it if someone walked up to me and said, Hey Jay, what's nine times six? And I'd be like, Oh, that's 54. But no problems come at me like that. Problems come at me in word problems. Hey, I was working on this machine and this happened and I think we need whatever random scenario it may be. I need to run it through the algorithm. And nowadays my algorithm is pretty much programmed through lean. Okay. Safety, quality, simplicity, speed, cost. Okay. Well, then, and then I'll run through it. That's how I think these days. Interesting. Oh, hey, do okay. So there's this condition called aphantasia. A colleague of mine in my business owners group has this condition. Yeah. Where I've she, got a friend who has it too. Okay. So you know about it. Basically, yep. for those listening, it's where you can't picture something visually in your mind. So I have very vivid mental pictures of things that don't exist, like a new work holding system or a new setup or a fixture. I can picture that. Then it's a race to fusion to get it out of my brain and into CAD. Yeah. Well, my friend, she doesn't have that. She cannot picture her husband's face, but she has memorized a photo of him on their wall in the bedroom. And so she can see that because she's memorized that. That is wild. Now, I am, well, let me back up one step. Do you dream? I do. But there was a time where I didn't. Through high school and college, I did not have dreams. That's wild. He must have been sleep deprived. (laughs) Probably. Probably, yeah. So some of my earliest memories are dreams. Mm. Wow. In life, like as a two, three, four-year-old? Yeah, maybe as a three, four, five-year-old, but I have incredibly vivid, detailed dreams, Mm. and I remember them, and that is both amazingly cool and also completely horrible. Yeah. And when I think of books, I grew up reading C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia Mm -hmm. and love that whole series of books. My favorite hands down, is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Oh. Volume nice. three in the box set that I grew up with. They've reordered them chronologically in a more modern setting. Sure. That the numbers vary. But for me, book three, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and there's actually a chapter in there. It's a series of episodes of the crew of a ship at sea encountering various challenges. Mm-hmm. But one of the things they find is they find an island enshrouded in mist Mm-hmm. And they rescue a man off of it. And that is the island where dreams come true. Ah. And they pull this guy screaming, half mad, out of the ocean. And he says, turn the ship around and fly for your life. And they're like, what's the deal? And he says, this is the island where dreams come true. And all the guys in the crew are like, oh, well, that sounds great. Let's land. Maybe I'd find that my brother was alive or I was married to this girl that I loved. And he starts stamping on the deck and screaming and saying, no, you idiots, not daydreams, dreams. And immediately the entire crew just like rushes to the oars 
and turns the ship and starts hauling away because everybody has had dreams that make you not want to go to sleep again. Mm, yeah. Is that the island where Eustace turns into a dragon? Nope. This is after that. This is the island where they find Lord Roop. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. And ugh, the old BBC kind of campy practical effects movies mm -hmm. are awesome. And the more recent CGI movies are garbage. And particularly how they handled that was really just bad. I've not was, seen that movie. I've seen the first two. Wait, <sighs> there's three. Lame. Right? Do not recommend. Okay. All right. I won't. But that idea that certain things that I dreamed as a child, mm -hmm. I still remember and they wow. still have an intense emotional impact on me. Wow. I am an intensely visual person. Uh-huh. And it is hard for me to enter into the mind of a person who cannot conjure mental images. Mm. There's a similar crossover, aphantasia. There are people who have what's called face blindness, mm -hmm. where they actually aren't, it's called, I can't pronounce it, prosopagnosia. Mm. It is an almost complete inability to recognize faces. This is programmed into our DNA. The way that we recognize people is we see their facial characteristics. But if you can't suss those out, you have to brute force memorize adjacent characteristics of people in order to recognize who you're seeing. Mm -hmm. And that, that is wild to conceive of. Yeah, it really is. So it's almost like colorblindness, but for the mind's eye. I was telling one of my employees, we were talking casually at break about a, this aphantasia. And he's like, oh, have you heard of the red star test? And if you Google that and click on the first image that comes up, it's, it's a series of six boxes and there's variations of different stars. And the first thing you do is you say, hey, I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to picture a red star, just several points, just a very basic red star. You got it. Okay. Now open your eyes. Then you show them this thing and you say, don't hack it. Just what did you see when I said that? And he's found that a lot of people, no, not a lot, a surprising number of people, maybe one in 10 cannot point to the red star that they pictured in their mind. And I open my eyes and I'm like, that's easy. What? This is too easy. He's like, no, this is one of the tests for aphantasia. He didn't know that, but he thought it was just a red star test. And that's what it is. So I don't know, maybe if there's people listening, try it. Because my colleague, when she found out, she was in her 50s, like mid 50s. And it just never occurred to her. Like she had a, I don't want to say like a mental deficiency, but just something that wasn't wired in her brain that she had learned to work around in life. She's a mechanical engineer, successful mechanical engineer and entrepreneur, but it just didn't occur to her that there was a part of the brain that could picture visual things that either did or did not exist. So it is, it is mind blowing. If anything, it causes me to have more patience with like bad drivers, people that just frustrates me. It may be a part of their brain that they're not trying to be, what's that saying? Why assume malice when ignorance will suffice? Why assume malice when just bad driving will suffice? Or that you can't retain what I told you might suffice. 
Or <laughs> I gave you a project where you're literally not mentally equipped to do this. This is called Hanlon's Razor. Never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by stupidity. Yeah. But stupidity is not really the right no. thing. And it's probably, I don't know when that was written. That's a little harsh. Well, that's more in the context of looking at like government incompetence. <laughs> so like when I look at the IRS, I go, you are either the most sadistic people or you are so bad at your jobs that I don't even know how to describe what you think you're doing. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I had a particular issue with the IRS this week. I'm not in trouble. I don't owe anything. It was just, I was trying to file this form. I filed it. They sent it back and said, we need this other info. I sent the other info in and they said, we can't process this other info because you didn't file it with this form. And I said, I already filed that form. The reason I'm sending this other info is because you got that other form. And then snail mailed me back and said, we need more info. And I sent it in. And because I didn't include a copy of the previously filed form, you rejected it. Mm. <laughs> like, oh. It just, it's bananagrams. I, I don't know what to do about it. Yeah. I had a similar type of thing when I was getting the loan for the yep. building. And I think we talked about it privately where they wanted me, I had a zero one year 0% interest loan from Haas on my UMC 500. And it's just like, yeah, you take that. It's 12 months, same as cash, right? Yep. So when they're going through my financials, they said, oh, you know what? You're going to have to pay that loan off. And I said, why? They said, because I think the, the monthly check we had to write, the bill was like nine grand. And so they said, if that puts you over the what is it? The payment to debt? Some stupid ratio. And I yep. said, okay, but we have literally hundreds of thousands of dollars of cash sitting in retained earnings. And you're asking me to pull from that and write a $90,000 check or something. I think that was a balance at the time and deplete retained earnings in order to satisfy your ratio. Are you really telling me to take cash away out of the company, cash is king, so that your ratio squares up? It's a 0% loan. You get it, right? And they said, oh, yeah, it doesn't make sense. I said, look, I don't have a college degree. I'm sure there's dozens of desks that this could cross with many dozens of degrees. You're telling me that there's no one that could rub a couple brain cells together and think that this is just a horrible business decision on both my part and your part? And they're like, well, we'll see what we can do. And so they ran it through, which is another thing I can't stand, like the, the anonymous underwriter. It's like, let me just talk to this person. No, you can't, the division here. And so I ended up going, okay, well, we're going to write 90 grand a, a check, pay off the stupid machine. And now guess what? You're last to get paid if we hit a little dip <laughs> in revenue or cash flow. It's just unbelievable. It's that type of stuff. That's where I would squarely label, okay, this your office is proven to be stupid. I will use that phrase right there. Yep. And this was a conventional loan. This was with a bank, not a like the predatory machine lender. <clears throat> I'm sorry. <laughs> Did I say that out loud? <laughs> 
No, this was with a big bank that's required me to do this. It wasn't with the what the SBA. I would expect that of the SBA to require me to do something stupid like that. But no, this was a bank. Yeah. People that chose to go into banking. Brought to you by Carl's Jr. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so I had this thought this past week. I was talking to a friend of mine. She asked how I process the liabilities, the loans that my company has. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, we only have two loans. We have a mortgage on our property, which is the building and the two acres that it's on. Mm-hmm. And we have an equipment loan for our two matched pair R450s okay. that we bought at the end of 2022. Mm-hmm. And I have enough cash that if I wanted to, I could close both those out 100% this calendar year. But it would bring me dangerously low. Right. And even from 2022 to now, the interest rate on the equipment loan and the 2020 interest rate on the mortgage is essentially below inflation. Mm -hmm. I'm making money by waiting. Yeah, exactly. And that is such a bizarre and frustrating thing <laughs> Yeah, to be in a position where I go, okay, it's mathematically better if I wait. Mm-hmm. It is emotionally, psychologically, Worse. ecumenically, in every way, better if I just kill the thing, yeah. just get rid of it, get it out of my life. Yeah. The idea of saying to all my employees, hey, next Friday... We're all taking off. The shop is closed. The lights are off. Nobody's here and no bills need to be paid. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's done. Yeah. That would feel so great. Speaking of bills, our solar system has been online since the end of February. And we're finally, now that we're in the summer, we're finally seeing a noticeable dip in our power bills and it feels good. It feels really nice. It's not earth shattering. Mm-hmm. But it's clearly there. When we do a 12-month look back at last June and last July, the difference is clear. What Can you talk percentage or dollar-wise? I think Percentage maybe, yeah. We've reduced our June-July bill between 40 and 50%. Okay, yeah, that's great. Are you running AC, HVAC type stuff? So we have almost 11,000 square feet and it is all conditioned space. Oh, I love it. We actually, it's Thursday. We had several more AC units installed on Monday of this week. Okay. And we have in the front half of the building, which is the offices and the CNC space, we have central air with geothermal. Mm -hmm. In the back part of the building, which is Bay 3, which is our largest single room, it's about 6,500 square feet, we have four wall units that are run to condensers outside. And our middle bay, the high, the in-between bay, didn't have anything. Mm-hmm. And so we were actually running fans to push cool air from bay three into bay yeah. two. Nice. And we finally had separate AC systems installed in bay two. And the whole building is wonderful now. Mm-hmm. It's like 71 degrees, 72 degrees everywhere. Machines running or not, doesn't matter. We have enough cooling volume to be able to manage the whole space, and it feels great. But 
solar without battery storage is a challenge because any day you don't use all the power you generated, you sell it back for pennies on the dollar. Yeah. And any day you consume more than you can generate, you buy it at full price. Yeah, right. That balancing act is, okay, well, if I oversize the system so that even on a dull day, we have all the power we need, we just end up subsidizing the utility company by selling them almost free power most of the time. Mm -hmm. And if we size the system so that on a blazing sunny day, we're covering most of the power we need every other day, we're still paying full price from the grid for most of our power or mm -hmm. a large chunk of our power. Yeah. And that's this weird kind of limbo where in principle, yes, we can look back over a 12 month period, not right now, but 12 months from March, we'll be able to look back at a 12 month period with the solar array in operation and say, we defrayed X percentage of our total power costs with solar over that time. Mm -hmm. And costs versus consumption are two different things. We could easily offset 100% of our consumption over 12 months, but not offset nearly 100% of our costs because of the way the power factor works, where we are generating like Saturdays and Sundays. I'm never in on Sundays. I am in most Saturdays for at least a half day. But if we have a sunny Saturday or a sunny Sunday, we're generating a bunch of power and we're dumping it all back into the grid for almost no money. And so we can say, okay, if you sum up the entire year, the total number of megawatt hours we consumed versus the total number of megawatt hours we generated could be one to one, null, even. But we would not nearly have offset 100% of our costs mm -hmm. because the exchange rate is not, dare I say, fair. Yeah, of course. <laughs> the you exchange know, rate is jacked. What was your goal in going solar? So my goal in going solar was that I wanted to start the journey of offsetting our grid consumption. And what I would like to be able to do is say, we offset 100% of our power consumption because regardless of the exchange rate on kilowatt hours, if I can say over a 12-month period, we consumed X number of megawatt hours of power and we generated that much or more, even if those generation and consumption curves didn't align so that we were eating our own power the whole time. I want to be able to say we gave as much as we took. Mm -hmm. And that's partly a marketing thing to say, if you could say, if you could snap your fingers and say, we are a 100% grid neutral CNC manufacturing company where we do on-site generation, mm -hmm. we produce more power than we consume over a 12-month period. We're actually grid positive. Yeah, okay. For certain demographics, that's a powerful marketing tool. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, if I said our facility is entirely powered by burning tires, that would also be a powerful marketing tool for a certain demographic. Yeah. 
<laughs> I well, uh, the reason I ask is for us to put panels on our roof of the building. We've got about, I'd say, on the roof, maybe eight thousand square feet we could use for panels. They built the trusses at a safety factor of one point two, just to keep costs down and weight. So it's not conducive to a permanent load. It's if someone walks on the roof, it's fine, but that's called the, I don't know, temporary load or so. I don't know. It's meant for people walk around. It's good enough, but you don't want permanent road because permanent load because things tend to shift around. So for me, I looked at it. If I could go with a small set, maybe like 20 or 30 panels and probably do a roof parking structure. So, you know, our cars get shade and we put some ground level panels on top of it. Mm -hmm. I would want a battery backup system so that when the power does fluctuate or we get sometimes in summer, we get brownouts, which are just little flickering, you know, of lights, which will just screw up your machine. Yeah. It's your tool path. So when that happens, I just want to literally have a capacitor to balance out that power. And on top of that, I want maybe 10 to 15 minutes of dependable, full-blown, all machines humming, going, and then some type of alert saying, hey, we're on solar power, we're on battery backup. And so we can turn off the machines. And I actually don't want to have any machines running when we're on backup power, but I do want lights on. I want HVAC on. I want the guys to be able to shift over to assembly. You um, want Wi-Fi on? Wi-Fi, all that good stuff. I want our phones and computers to work for the rest of the day. So we're not looking for big power draw. We actually have, as part of our employee PTO time, we have eight hours of weather-related time off, which really just says, okay, guys, look, it's two o'clock. You all go home at three. Go ahead and shut down. You all get to use one hour of the weather-related PTO. It just helps smooth out those pay. It's a pay capacitor. That's what that is right there. So that would be my motivation to have just a little bit of solar power with battery backup so that we could just get through those little ups and downs of, well, shoot, the power went out yesterday, not at this building, at another location that we're at. And it just, it screwed those guys up and they're just a few blocks away, quarter mile away. Yeah. And they didn't know what to do. They're like, good thing we all have flashlights in our pockets. Yeah. Pretty good thing. So good thing our building has windows. <laughs> yeah. The second location does not have windows. It's so Oh sad. man. So, so bay one, has windows, bay two and bay three do not have windows. And we actually just recently bought, I think either off eBay or Amazon, a number of small LED light units that take Milwaukee M18 batteries because we have a bunch of Milwaukee batteries for drills, for vacuums. We have a bunch of charging stations around the shop for Milwaukee M18 batteries. And the ability to just, we 3D printed brackets and each one holds a little grab-and-go light assembly. You just grab the light, grab the M18, snap them together, turn them on, and then drop them anywhere in the building and have lots of light. Mm -hmm. That's really nice, but windows are just like, oh, that's nice. There's light. Yeah, we have skylights in our main building. That's really nice. The other building is a former indoor shooting range. So literally the walls and ceiling are bulletproof. Yeah. Have you checked that for lead? I know there's lead embedded in some of the drywall on the ceiling. Mm. Well, I'm not sure of it. I haven't gotten up there, but you see like fragmentation, like splatter. If there are bullet holes or splatter, what we call spall Spall, up there, spalling, 
Yeah. When you hit a target and the round fragments, you get spalling. If there's spall, there's lead. Oh, I'm sure of it. Yeah. Yeah. Should I be concerned? So I have OCD and lead is one of those things that I am probably disproportionately cautious about. So Mm -hmm. if you go to a range, especially an indoor range, where you don't have free air blowing around, it's good to decon with wipes that get rid of lead, dust, and lead particulate afterwards. And I've still got young kids. And so I have a pair of shoes that I wear whenever I'm going to the range. And I do not wear those around inside the house. Yeah. When I get home, I shuck those. Airborne lead too, which is the worst. If you're indoors, so a lot of indoor shooting ranges basically have chopped up tire rubber chip backstops with an angled steel berm behind them mm-hmm. to both slow down and then stop the rounds that are impacting through the targets into the back berm. Mm-hmm. And good ranges have a process for cycling through all that backstop filler and recycling out all the solid lead that impacts and then dead ends there. Like my local law enforcement range in Bloomington, they have a whole system that has conveyors that actually basically shakes and sorts out all the impacted solid lead and recycles it. They have a metal scrap company that comes and picks it up and pays them for it. Mm -hmm. But you also need to recycle a pretty large volume of air out of a space like that, both because of the combustion byproducts from your muzzle flashes, from the actual burning of the propellant in the cartridge, but also because there's some amount of lead dust Mm -hmm. released into the air when you hit a target or hit the berm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you don't cycle that out, you will get potentially significant health affecting levels of lead in an enclosed space Mm -hmm. on outdoor ranges much less of an issue but you can still have you can track lead on your shoes like i would never go to an outdoor range that gets shot on all the time stay there for an eight hour all day class and then wear those shoes home and walk around in my house where my two-year-old daughter crawls around on the floor, mm-hmm. that would be a bad idea. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this second location, it has not been a gun range for about 21 years. Okay. And I was a member there back in the day. And it had, what I remember, you're standing in your whatever stall or whatever it's called. In bay. V- bay, thank you. It had a very prominent airflow from your back moving forward. That's good. Um, And you could never smell powder or anything else. But I wonder, hey, where did that go? Were they filtering it? Why did they close? Just up and just absolutely close? Was it EPA related? Was it ordinance related? Because it was the only shooting range in about a 20 mile radius. Yeah, I should probably look into that. So a friend of mine from Philadelphia, told me a story about an indoor range he used to go shoot at. And I'm trying to recall how this story went. The business got audited when the added weight of unremoved lead scrap 
began to cause buckling in the walls of the oh building. Oh Structural. It, yeah. No, the actual shooting range portion was on a second story of a building. Oh, okay. And they were not retrieving, recycling, or anything. They were just allowing all the lead to dead end into the backstop. Oh. Lead's heavy. Yeah. If you have 10 years worth of daily operation in a shooting range or more, yeah. you have thousands and thousands of pounds of weight being added. And the company got closed. I think the building may have even gotten condemned. Mm. And almost all the employees ended up with lead poisoning. No way. And there was like a whole thing about it because if you don't have active filtration and you're not cleaning surfaces off and you're just allowing all that lead to just happen in the space, mm -hmm. yeah, you're going to have problems. Yeah. Wow. And so I'm a huge fan of dry fire. If you carry a pistol, you can do almost all the work with no ammo, mm -hmm. with no lead, with no propellant, with no powder, with no anything. And it's free. Ammo is expensive, especially since COVID. Ammo is expensive. It's come mm -hmm. down. It went way, way up and then has gradually settled back. But if it's free, yeah, free's good. Is I like this free. a product that your buddy or colleague, John Korea, kind of talks about? Like, what is uh, so there are a variety of companies that exist to market products in the dry fire space. But the essence of dry fire is. You dump your mag out, you clear your weapon, you sequester all your ammo in a separate room so that you do not have the potential of accidentally having a slip capture error where you load the gun up when you're not really thinking about it on autopilot. Mm -hmm. And you don't need to have a laser or a dry fire mag or any other particular thing. You can just, the mechanics of actually shooting are the last 10%. The mechanics of clearing your cover garments, accessing your firearm, getting a good grip on it, getting it out of the holster, getting a good solid two-handed grip, building a sight picture, and then pressing the trigger, none of those things require any ammo at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's the part that most people don't spend a lot of time practicing. Yeah. And that is the prerequisite to getting a good hit on your target. That's great. You stuff. never, Jeez. ever, ever start your gunfight with your gun in your hand and your sights on target. With your, if you're with law your enforcement, it's on. a standoff, separate yeah. question. Yeah, yeah, that's different. If you're a civilian person defending yourself, you do not get to start your gunfight with your gun out, your sights on target, and your finger on the trigger. Mm -hmm. You don't start at get a clean trigger press and you're golden. You start at, something's happening, I don't feel safe, this is a problem, I need to take action. If I have a firearm, I need to access it. Mm -hmm. And you can practice accessing a firearm thousands of times with no live rounds ever being fired. Yeah, I subscribe to John Korea's channel, Active Self-Protection. Yep. And I bet if I surveyed like 10 or 20 videos, most of those videos that include a firearm, no one's standing there in the perfect stance, triangulated stance, 
They're not like the site picture doesn't establish. It's just pull and p- pull and press the trigger. Pull it from your yep. holster and press the trigger. So yeah, I never thought about that. And that's always the question of what is best practice versus what is real. And we want to overtrain the critical skills so that they are unconsciously competent. This is the classic four. Like there's unconscious incompetence. There's conscious incompetence, there's conscious competence, and then unconscious competence, Mm -hmm. which is at the very bottom end, you don't know how to do the thing and you don't even know that you don't know how to do the thing. Then you become aware that you don't know how to do the thing. Then you can do the thing with concentration, with awareness. And then in the final layer, you can do the thing subconsciously, automatically. It's a deeply ingrained and learned skill. And this is true of all kinds of things. This is exactly how everybody drives. You get in a car for the first time in the driver's seat. You've been a passenger your entire childhood. You've never been behind the wheel. And you're like, there are so many levers and buttons and what does this thing do? And you don't even know what you don't know. And you start driving and go, oh my gosh, everything requires my full concentration. Everything is hard. And this is the student driver who is almost incapacitated by the number of decisions and choices and all the data coming at them. Mm -hmm. And then you learn conscious competence. If you, (laughs) this is not even a thing anymore, but like in the 80s and 90s, when you learn to drive, you probably learn to drive on a manual transmission and getting over the hump of understanding signals and wipers and your lever and all the different, and and then managing clutch and brake and gas, all that stuff. You get to a point where you can do it, but you have to be concentrating on it. You do things like you drive for a mile and a half with your blinker around because you're totally concentrating on the flow of traffic and you don't even notice click, 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 click happening the entire time. (laughs) And then finally, you get to a point of unconscious competence. You are on a steep uphill slope in a manual, making a right-hand turn, and all the things happen automatically. Your blinker's on, you've got the brake-in, clutch-in. When the light turns green, you just drive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're not having to think about any of it. Yeah, that's right. It makes sense. That level of proficiency in almost any field, whether it is programming a manual probing routine, as I was doing late last night, or driving a car or doing anything else, there is a stark difference between the beginner who doesn't even know what they don't know and the experienced person who can do it with only 10% of their CPU. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that's a really great place. If you have a goal, understanding what it's going to take to run that in the background and then not focusing on the entire thing all at once, but focusing on the chunks that allow you to get it to run more in the background. Yeah. I have a friend, he's retired now, but he was with Culver City PD, which is surrounded by LAPD. And he's been in, I want to say three officer involved shootings. Mm -hmm. And he said, when he talks to people, he says, yeah, I've been involved in three that happened in reality, but I train mentally. 
like I've been in hundreds and hundreds of officer involved shootings mentally, or even I'm thinking, Hey, I'm going to round this corner. It's a simple domestic thing. I'm going to walk around the corner. Dude's got a gun. What am I doing now? It's, I feel bad because you're always being suspicious. I guess that's a byproduct of being in law enforcement, but it's also what keeps you alive too. And he just says, I just train mentally. I'm always thinking about what's going to happen. And after a while, I realize that after five, six, 10 years on the job, he would naturally step to sides of the wall, naturally be in a position where he's able to draw, but he stopped going through those mental gymnastics or having a mental picture of what would I do? Where would I go if a gunfight breaks out? It would just happen. And that's called, yeah, that's called, what is it called? Unconscious competence. Unconscious competence. Yeah. Yeah. That's where you want to be. Yeah. I love it. And the whole point of learning all these skills is to protect a life that's worth living. There you go. The goal is not to live a hypervigilant, paranoid life because 80 years of hyper-paranoid vigilance is miserable. Yeah. The whole goal is have a life that's worth defending, love the people around you, build a family, a business, a community that is generous and humane, that always gives more than it takes. And there is an upper limit on what you can learn by watching, by thinking. Mm. Like I could watch any number of videos of Navy pilots landing planes on aircraft carriers. I could watch thousands of hours of Navy planes landing on aircraft carriers. And I could understand the vocabulary and the concepts and the challenges involved. Uh None of that actually enables me to get into the cockpit and land that plane on an aircraft carrier. I had a hard time landing my F-14 Tomcat in the NES game Top Gun in the late 80s, early 90s, let alone in real life. Yeah. Now, I was a big aficionado of the old 386-46 DOS game Red Baron. Oh, yeah. And there's essentially no landing in that. Like, you just, yeah, I'm going to try to crash. You're dead. Yeah. (laughs) But- No matter how much I could learn about certain things, there is absolutely no substitute for actually doing them. Yep. And that doesn't mean that there's no value in understanding them, but I really enjoy jujitsu, Brazilian jujitsu. You can learn an enormous amount conceptually and technically by watching videos But until you actually get it on the mat and put hands on somebody and try it, it's not embodied. It's Mm -hmm. not actually there at your fingertips. It's still theoretical. It is still theoretical. And oftentimes, the biggest difference between me and the guys that I'm rolling with is that I'm having to consciously think through the position and where my grips are and where the pressure is and what I need to do and what the danger is and where I'm trying to maneuver to get away from their attack and build my own defense and build my own attack, where the people I'm rolling with, if they're brown belts or black belts, they are not thinking through things consciously in the same way that I am. They are just flowing with it and they're understanding intuitively 
where to grab, where to apply pressure, where to pull, where to push, where to establish their base. They're doing that because they've driven the manual transmission so many times. They're just like, oh yeah, clutch in. But they're not thinking clutch in. They're just putting the clutch in. Yep. And the areas in my business where I have that level of unconscious competence become almost invisible. The things you can do without thinking about them, when they run in the background, you have to consciously bring them back to the foreground in order to teach anybody else how to do them. Mm-hmm. And I actually, I made a change this week that I'm really excited about, which is one of my employees who runs CNC machines most of the time has been doing a bunch more CAD work lately. And we actually rearranged his schedule so that he and I have a block of time each week with nobody else in the shop where we can just work on fixture design, cam, and process troubleshooting. Mm -hmm. Because I struggle so much when all the flurry of daily activity of phone calls and shipping and customer service and all these things are just happening around me, I really struggle to focus on downloading all the things that I've learned to do that I do without thinking about them to somebody who doesn't know how to do them yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Man, that's such a powerful business hack. I'm so excited about our fulfillment center, mostly because on the second story of our fulfillment room is going to be my office, which is a permanent do not disturb. If Jay is up in his office, you do not go upstairs. You don't ask him questions. One of the habits I make every Wednesday, I don't come into the office. Or if I do, it's in the afternoon because I need that isolated brain time to think yep. process through. And it has been a game changer. I just can't do that in the summer because my wife and kids are home. They're not yeah. at their co-op on Wednesdays. So I need I actually upstairs, do not just disturb. signed up this week for a couple days a month at a co-working space. Great. And the guy who manages that space, I found he's actually in my Vistage chapter. And I've gone and visited it. It's a beautiful space. Lot, I'm basically buying the cheapest couple day a month, no dedicated desk version. Because all I'm going to do is show up there two days a month, probably, with my laptop and hunker down in whatever available desk there is and just focus on whatever is on my to-do list that doesn't require me to be physically at the shop Mm -hmm. because I can't work from home. I don't have a home office. I've got five kids. They're on summer break. I can't get anything done at home unless it's after 11 p.m. Yeah. And if I do that, I'm junk for the next day because if I start working at 11 p.m., I will work till two or three Mm -hmm. and then the next day I'm a wreck. Yeah. See, I do that on Tuesday nights. That's my work late night. And your Wednesdays turn out how? Well, I just start later. My brain will start functioning around 9 a.m. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. Because I, I do thrive at night for creativity. So That's interesting. Because of my schedule, I end up a couple mornings a week generally getting up pretty early. But I do like to dig in and work hard late. Mm-hmm. And that's when I often get my most productive work done. I got to have music. I've got to have some snacks. But I can get a lot of work done late at night. That's so funny. I can't have any. It needs to be dead silence for me. I am not. Really? Easily distracted. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, I've man. played with like br- different brain hacks of doing uh, like these different Hertz uh, concentration, not 440 or uh, the, uh, there's some Hertz that the brain waves that matches it. I don't know. Maybe uh, it works mumbo some jumbo. People, not me. Yeah. That's probably what I'd vote it as, but no, I like dead silence. I mentioned the second facility we have down the street. That one, it's got a closet and I joke that it's my dream office because it's probably about four feet wide by six feet long. It's got a plug at one end, no windows, and it's painted white. I'm like, that is my dream office. I'm going to sit here for eight hours and pound stuff out. You're a monk. Yeah, I'd probably be a pretty good (laughs) monk. Probably. (laughs) Yeah, I normally turn on music in the other room. Mm -hmm. So it's very faintly in the background. So- where I do my programming is in our front office, which is adjacent to Bay One, and I'll just turn on a Bluetooth speaker in Bay One, normally like funk music, yeah. something up-tempo, peppy, going to keep me awake, but I don't really want to be hearing it. I just want to have it there. Okay. Let me ask you this. How many siblings do you have? I have seven siblings. Well, there. that's why, Andrew. I got a guy that works <laughs> for me. He's got 10 siblings. No, 11. He's 12. He's 12 of 12. And he's like, I can't do anything if there's not people walking around, uh, just there's talking, not noise. no noise. Like he thrives in a Starbucks. I'm like, that uh, is a nightmare. No, I can't I do Starbucks. I can't get anything done in Why? a Starbucks. Why though? Too distracting? Um, I'm intensely distracted by motion. Okay. All right. I have tried. We had a really candid conversation between my wife and I. We were on a family vacation just in May. And we were trying to have a sit down, just the two of us in a coffee shop and have a conversation about something important to us. And I cannot not look at peripheral motion. <laughs> yeah. Okay. If people are walking around in my peripheral vision, I have to look at them and see what's happening. Mm-hmm. And so in my shop with all the shades drawn and the music in the background, but nobody else in the building. I can work as hard as I want, and there is nothing visually distracting me. Yeah. Hey, you might thrive with this 24-square-foot office that I described. I immediately thought, that sounds great to me. (laughs) Okay. All right. Most people are like, okay, Jay's psycho. But I'm like, no. (laughs) No, that's like focus. I would absolutely paper over the windows if it was an office that I had to work in all the time. Yeah. like My current office here at the shop has four tall, narrow windows in it that face out toward the driveway that's shared between us and the business next to us. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to have to get blinds. Yeah. Because as I do more work in there, as I try to block out chunks of time during the day where I can be in my office and not be disturbed, Mm -hmm. anytime a vehicle drives by or a person walks by, I'm like, hey, what's that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm like a dog going squirrel. You're probably like me. You're probably also security conscious too. Like who's coming down my driveway? Yeah. Who is this person? So I don't know. Yeah. Well, I got to run. Good podcast. Yeah. Good to talk to you. And we will catch up next week.